they think that Muslim they are terrorists or some people think it's that but most people don't think that all Muslims are terrorists you wouldn't think when you meet a refugee for the first time that they would ask such an honest question but that's exactly what Huda did and if Huda wants to learn more about us and why we think the things we do maybe it's time we start to ask questions and learn about them as well I'm Tiffany Jelke. This is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. Today, we are experiencing the largest global migration crisis since World War II. There are over 65.6 million forcibly displaced people in the world. 22.5 of them are refugees. Out of the 22.5 million, only less than 1% are ever settled to a third country. Over the next eight months, we will meet refugees in Texas. We'll hear their stories, we'll hear from local experts, and we'll talk about the security vetting process, the economic impact of refugees, and many other issues. In the mid-2000s, Iraq experienced an increasingly high level of sectarian violence. Some scholars and journalists state that the country was experiencing a civil war. While most Iraqis did not agree that civil war had emerged, sectarian ideology appeared on the doorsteps of innocent Iraqi civilians who were deemed apostates simply for not getting involved. It was in this roiling crescendo of violence against the everyday person that Ghazwan Abdullah and his family found themselves. So um, in 2005, I fled my country of Iraq due to a death threat message that was thrown um, in the front yard of our home in Iraq by a sectarian militia. Alongside with the a death threat message that read, you either leave the country or you are going to meet your fate. A week before receiving that, that death threat message, a friend sent what was kidnapped and returned of ransom, and of course by a sectarian militia. Even when the family paid his ransom, the militia, sectarian militia, sent the body of a 10-year-old boy chopped up in a garbage bag. So my name is Gazwan Abdullah, and for sure, no doubt, I'm a human being. I'm a father of three children. Um, I have twins. They just turned 11. And the youngest one, she's nine. And they were all born back in Jordan when we were refugee after we fled um, our country of Iraq. And I spent 11 years back in Jordan before I was admitted and approved to come to the United States in 2015. Gazwan has now lived in Dallas for two years with his family. He works two different jobs for two different nonprofits that help refugees. It's the Mosaic Family Services. I am a case manager, refugee case manager, and we work with them until they become self-sufficient. My other job is with um, Seek the Peace, that we also work with refugees, but peace building organization and, and advocacy as well. We empower refugees to become um, advocate for themselves. I asked Gazwan what inspired him to dedicate his life to helping other refugees. It turns out he started helping them back in Jordan, early on in his 11-year wait for approval to resettle. I was called to um, join an event 
that is held by a nonprofit uh, called the Collateral Repair Project, located in the same neighborhood I lived in. Uh, my role was just to help them distribute food boxes to refugees. And I thought that, you know what, I'm just sitting at home, I'm not doing anything. Let me go there and see what's going on. The joy Gaswan experienced handing out food boxes to other refugees helped give him hope in a life that seemed forever on hold, without the ability to work or move around. So I went over there and I started to hand food boxes to refugees. The thing is, that event touched my, my um, heart and moved my feelings that whenever I handed the food box to a refugee, I drew a smile on that refugee's face and I realized I can do more. And he did do more. Collateral Repair Project in Amman, Jordan, had their eye on Gazwan. He'd been doing such a great job. I was, I was hired officially to um, assess the need of the refugees besides you know, delivering assistance to them. And I kept receiving promotions from that nonprofit to become the programs director and a member of the board of trustees, which are still on the board until you know, this date. Still, life was hard, not just for him, but for his family. So I spent almost 11 years back in Jordan. You know, all my three children were born back in Jordan, and they know nothing about Iraq except for what we tell them and share some memories and, and photos about their country. So during those years, those years was the, you know, the hardest years on us, you know. In Jordan, refugees are largely not legally permitted to work, which for Gazwan and his family meant dependence on meager assistance. So it allows us just to, you know, cover the rent and very basic stuff. And we had to go on, like, economic system with the food. One of the hardest things for Gazwan was watching his children miss out on the simplest of childhood treats. I was just buying some produce and, you know, bread. And when my son grabbed a chocolate bar and I had to take that chocolate bar out of his hand. And he was cracking, you know, he exploded, like crying because he needed that. As he can see, you know, other children in the neighborhood, they eat chips or candy bar. But the thing is, you know, with the little money that we had and we had to live on that little money, it was one of the, the, the hardest thing on me as a parent, that I am not able to, um, to give my children the basic thing. I wanted to meet Gazwan's family, and he graciously allowed me into his home on a Saturday afternoon. the Iraqi national anthem played by Gazwan, and dropping some vocals in the background is his 11-year-old daughter, Hiba. When we came here, um, we were scared in school, and we didn't know any English, and we were so scared. And now we have high scores in all the in math, writing, reading, and we now 
now have to speak English. We're not afraid no more. Oh, that's what I can tell you're not afraid anymore. Look at your face. <laughs> you're so happy. She What's does. your favorite subject? Math. Really? We need girls to love math. We'll hear more from my visit with Gazwan's family in a little while. Let's hear from Jason Clark at Seek the Peace, Gazwan's friend and one of his current employers. Jason and his wife Tess met Gazwan while in Jordan to learn about the urban refugees and while learning how to speak Arabic. We were there for the summer and we, I forget how, but my wife got in contact with Gazwan and he was managing an NGO there um, in, in East Amman, which is where in the urban side of refugee resettlement, which is a larger portion than in the camps um, where people were. And so Gazwan invited us to come out to his um, organization. So we went out there, uh, we went and met families and he just kind of showed us what their work was like. Um, and we were just interested to see what is what is um, an urban camp uh, sort of look like and what are the needs here? What are people dealing with? What's daily life like? Um, and so um, that's when we met Gazwan and it also happened to be Ramadan at the same time. And so of course Ramadan can be a really fun time in the evening uh, and a really difficult time during the day. Um, and so, and you know, of course it's summertime in the, in the Middle East. And so Gazwan was just amazing. He invited us over to his place and met his family uh, and his three kids. And, um, and just, he just kind of became a friend. And as friends often do, they connected over a shared bad habit after Jason struck a deal with his wife, Tess, to only smoke on vacation. So what's the opposite of vacation in not regular life? And I was like, it's probably what we're doing right now. We're in Ramadan. And so, you know, Goswam would sit down with like three packs of cigarettes, you know, at the start of dinner. And uh, my wife just kind of gave me the okay. And so we formed a bond over, over smoking together in Jordan. And, um, you know, that was, yeah, 2015. Jason's organization, Seek the Peace, sits in the center of an apartment complex. Actually, an old leasing building for the complex in the Vickery Meadow neighborhood of Dallas. Vickery Meadow is where most refugees start out since rents are so low there and apartment managers work with resettlement agencies. When you drive into the complex, the multicultural environment is the first thing you notice. There are people from what seem like all seven continents, dressed to varying degrees of Asian, Middle Eastern, and African garb. The distinct dialects of different languages greet your ears warmly. When we met in this exciting microcosm, I asked Jason first what the peacebuilding mission of Seek the Peace looks like for him. Peacebuilding is, is, um, is expanding the capacity of people in a community uh, to engage the issues and strive for their own flourishing. I wondered how Jason got into this unique work that led him all the way to Jordan. I came out of the fashion industry, so I was not nonprofit <laughs> world at all. You know, really wasn't thinking that way. Um, so it wasn't like a desire to be a social worker or to, you know, try to get a job at, at a major resettlement organization at all. Um, you know, I met a small crew of Congolese uh, young guys. You know, they were in their early 20s, 19, 20, 21 years old. And um, this one particular guy, Everest. This one guy, Everest, doesn't seem like much, but... 
turns out Everest changes the course of Jason's life. Yeah, so, so Everest, or Ava, as I call him, uh, he's from the Congo. Um, his parents were, were both killed. He has you know, five or six brothers and sisters who are all dispersed. Um, he was a, a child soldier from 10 to 12 years old, and how his uncle um, really kind of bartered him his, his life back out of the militia uh, and was eventually killed for it. And then and Ava and his, his older brother escaped um, in the back of a fish truck uh, for like a several-day journey into, into Kenya, um, slept on the streets of Nairobi for seven or eight months, waiting for the UN to qualify their, their refugee status. And then from about 12 or 13 or so years old till he was 19, he lived in a, he lived in a Kakuma refugee camp. Uh, and that 19 was resettled here to Dallas. And I met him a year after he had been resettled here. Stories like Gazwan's and Everest's are far too common. Today, we are experiencing the largest global migration crisis since World War II. While UNHCR classifies some as refugees, others are literally running for their lives without gaining the refugee classification and often make it to the United States to find a harsh reality as asylum seekers. There's a lot of confusion about the difference between refugees and asylum seekers. Asylum seekers are really just refugees. They flee the same kind of violence that refugees do and they have to prove a well-founded fear, just like refugees. What determines whether or not someone ultimately is designated as a refugee or an asylum seeker is the country they present themselves to. In Jordan, for instance, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees handles the cases of those fleeing. That person is then designated as a refugee once approved by UNHCR. And they wait and enter a lengthy process to determine if they will ever be resettled permanently in a third country as a citizen of that new country. In the United States, when someone flees violence or persecution in, say, Guatemala or El Salvador, arrives at the border, or presents to an asylum office inside the U.S., they are designated as asylum seekers and directed into a lengthy process that determines whether or not the U.S. will grant them asylum status, which allows them to be a citizen. To learn more about asylum seekers, we turn to our next guest, Bill Holston. Bill Holston is a jovial man with a thick white mustache and tortoiseshell eyeglasses, which insisted as Bill making them cool, in the same way Buddy Holly and Andy Warhol inspired generations of optical fashion. He has a trademark sense of style, and he carries it off with hats, bow ties, and shirts to mark each occasion. Bill celebrates life every day, cherishing the details. He's the epitome of a Southern gentleman born out of Mobile, Alabama. Bill is an immigration attorney, and he got his law degree at Southern Methodist University. He practiced in the private sector for years before being hooked by a single asylum case, which he took on pro bono. Now the executive director of Human Rights Initiative of North Texas, that one case began an annual commitment of taking on asylum cases in his spare time. He joins us today to talk about asylum seekers that he serves in the five Dallas immigration courts. Bill's journey to become a maverick for asylees began when he helped a Guatemalan woman gain asylum in the U.S. 
Guatemala, her um, her husband had been a leader in a truckers union, and they were taking their kids to school one morning. And an unmarked car pulled up, grabbed her husband, and pulled him into the car. And then a couple days later, she was called to come identify his body in the morgue. So she started trying to figure out what had, who had murdered her husband, uh, only to start getting death threats herself and realizing that the men who had killed her were actually affiliated with the government. And so she made the very difficult decision to grab her children and try to go somewhere safe because there's no, there's no being safe from if it's the government that's trying to kill you. So she came here to the United States and I helped her with her asylum case and I was just hooked. Asylees are the bottom of the barrel. They flee their countries for their lives. But when they arrive at the doorsteps of the country they're running to, they often find that laws slap them in the face. If you're fleeing violence, you've escaped uh, torture in, let's say, Eritrea. I've had a lot of clients like this escape torture in Eritrea. They get smugglers to help them get to Sudan and then actually to South America, Central America, and you cross the border uh, and uh, come into Texas. You then present yourself to Border Patrol and say, I'm here, uh, and through a translator say, I'm, I'm fleeing persecution and I'm, I'm seeking uh, safety here in the United States. Um, that, that was, uh, the law permits that. It's actually how you go about it. It's how you're supposed to apply for asylum. You present yourself. You can't apply for asylum in your home country. You've got to go to a port of entry or border and present yourself to Border Patrol and seek that relief. Well, uh, in this administration, Border Patrol has uh, been... Uh, turning people away and uh, at the border and telling people, yeah, you don't have a right to asylum, uh, you, we're not taking those cases. Sometimes they'll say, oh, you have to go get an appointment at this office in Mexico and get a ticket to come for an interview, none of which is uh, permitted under um, American law and certainly violates our obligations under uh, international treaties. Rights being denied is something refugees also experience. So I asked Bill, what is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Well, the, the primary difference is legal. Uh, the fact is that people who are seeking asylum here in the United States are seeking to obtain refugee, uh, the legal definition of, of uh, refugee. Uh, for themselves, and that's the big difference between refugees and asylum seekers. Both groups meet the same legal definition that comes out of the United, uh, the UN uh, uh, Declaration of Human Rights. So that is people who have a well-founded fear of persecution because of one of five reasons, their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. While Gazwan is a refugee and not an asylum seeker, he actually knows this process very well because it's not really that different for refugees. You know, we all flood the country, not just because we want to you know, flee the country or we don't like to live there back in the country. There was a, something happened to you like a direct threat and, uh, it, and, and it made you um, flee your country. You go to a second country, a neighboring country. This is the way that you will be able to apply with UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. You cannot apply while you're in country. So how is this all decided? Are you an asylee when you flee? Or are you a refugee? Basically, it just depends. 
like when you leave your country, you go to another country. That country may allow you to live there and apply for refugee status with the UNHCR. Or that country might be like the United States. When you arrive, you claim asylum status. And then this happens. We've got uh, persecuted Christians from Egypt, Syria, Iran, um, people that are pro-democracy activists from Africa or Asia. They've been tortured. They, through tremendous risk, uh, come choose to come to the United States because they literally believe that the United States is a land of refuge and freedom and opportunity. Um, and then they're met with the harsh reality that we're going to lock them up. If this doesn't sound familiar to you, there's a good reason. It just started a few years ago under the Obama administration when the government made a deal with Corrections Corporation of America bypassing the public bidding process and contracting for private detention centers to house asylum seekers while they wait for their case to be heard. These detention centers hold all asylum seekers, including women and children. It's important to note that asylum seekers used to be released on their own recognizance and there was not a problem with them showing up for their immigration court appearances. And this doesn't come cheap either. It costs about $120 a day per person to detain these refugees. It's really, a, it's a really a stain on our, um, on our justice system that we're, we're doing that. In addition to that, even if you're not very motivated by humanitarian grounds, it's very, very expensive uh, to do it this way. Um, and so uh, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, the cost of detention where there are much less uh, onerous uh, alternatives, uh, release on their own recognizance, uh, ankle bracelets, uh, supervised visits with ICE officers. There's all sorts of ways that we could, um, we could keep track of people um, while their cases are pending other than locking them up. So there are two different types of asylum seekers, and Bill explains those to me. Now, an affirmative asylum seeker is someone who comes here to the United States and either they come in legally through some sort of visa or they cross the border illegally, but they aren't. Um, they, they come in what's called entry without inspection. They're, they're not in, they don't encounter border patrol or ICE, and so they, uh, they're just here in the country, and the government doesn't know they're here. So in either of those groups of people, they apply for asylum, and that is a very, very rigorous process. That process includes you must apply for asylum. You also have to fill out Form I-589. You have to meet the requirements for applying for asylum. In other words, you have to be eligible. You have to have fingerprints and background security checks conducted. Then you receive an interview notice. Often there's a delay in scheduling your asylum interview. And Bill will tell us more about this later because the asylum system has a huge backlog right now. You'll have an interview. And then an asylum officer will make a determination. One officer will decide your fate and your future. In Texas, that office is in Houston. And finally, you'll receive the results of your decision. In most cases, the decision is no. So a couple issues that the asylum system is experiencing in the moment, and frankly, they're some of the biggest human rights issues in our country uh, at the moment uh, in dealing with, uh, with immigrants. One are the backlogs. 
we don't presently serve detained asylum seekers because we don't have the resources to, to send lawyers to these remote detention centers. And so there's nobody in Dallas currently representing detained, uh, our pro bono lawyers representing detained asylum seekers. With all this bad news about asylum seekers, I had to ask Bill what he'd like to see happen. I actually, at this moment, have very little hope or expectation for positive things to happen. I'm really, uh, my goal is more for terrible things not to happen. Uh, I'd love to fact that, uh, I'd love to think that we could have immigration reform, um, but I just don't see it in the cards anytime soon. Uh, so what I'd like us to do is really at least avoid an overreaction of changing our asylum laws, making them harsher, having an increased use of detention, uh, increased use of expedited removal. Um, uh, let's, let's not double down on policies that are already serving us. Uh, I would be satisfied with that. Uh, it would be great if we could actually put resources into immigration courts and asylum offices and train people adequately. We really need to do that. The equivalent of this long wait by a UNHCR refugee is sitting in a refugee camp or an urban refugee area like Gaswan did for 11 years. To be honest, yeah, I, I gave up. I gave up. And I said, well... Um, once we are refugees, it means that we will be stuck here in Jordan forever. But the thing is, you know, our children, what is, you know, what, what, what is the guilt that my children did in the past, you know, to be treated like that? They have the right to live and work on building their own future. I included asylum seekers on this episode because they too meet the definition of refugee, even if they aren't recognized as such because of legal processes in our country. Whether an asylum seeker or a UNHCR refugee, these people have been forced to flee by no fault of their own in conditions that you and I would find intolerable. We'd do the same thing. Why don't we understand this more? Why don't we have more compassion? Here's how Bill, Jason, and Gazwan answered that question. Because I think there's a real disconnect between people, how they feel about uh, immigration as a political issue and how they feel about individuals. And so uh, they might have a, a cynical or a negative view of, of refugees in general, but the person that's wound up coming to their church who is a Burmese refugee, somebody that they greet warmly and, and see, uh, see potential in. Uh, and so the more we talk about people's stories, uh, the better. Fears that have been uh, that have been manipulated, and fear will always cancel out your values. Since refugees are, you know, giving the um, let's say uh, the, the chance or the approval to go to the United States, has any American been killed by a refugee? I don't think so. No one. The only thing I'd like to add to those observations is that whether someone's a refugee or an asylee, they don't fall into the category of the biggest threat to Americans traveling from overseas or outside our borders. The biggest threat actually comes from tourist visas and work visas. And that's simply because refugees and asylum seekers are already put through the most rigorous background security checks of anybody entering the country by far. 
We'll go into that more in a future episode. So uh, I, wanted, I want to be able to take that person who's fearful of refugees and introduce them to a refugee. <laughs> Thank you. That is so good, I have to tell you. <laughs> With cardamom. It's cardamom? Yes, and oh, a tea. That is so good. It is Remember Huda from the first few seconds of this episode? Huda is Gazwan's wife and Hiba's mom. She asked me if everyone thought that Muslims were terrorists. I was caught off guard and I didn't know how to answer, so I did the best I could. I'd like you to see another side of Huda. When I arrived at her apartment, she had a tray of tea waiting for me, along with some Iraqi meat pies she had made. They were delicious. Everything was done with such care and hospitality. It reminded me of Southern Texans that I grew up with. There was a tray that was ceramic with a silver casing around it that was just ornate and beautiful. And then there was the tea, served so carefully and meticulously in this beautiful china cup on a saucer. Huda also showed me around her kitchen and all the food she had been preparing for her family for the week. She and I talked about how much she loves to draw, crochet. She was even surprised about how I like to curl my hair because she likes straight hair. She has curly hair and she wants it straight. When she said that, I told her about the expression we have here. The grass is always greener on the other side. Huda was a civil engineer in Iraq. And like all moms, she bragged about her daughter Hiba, who has the engineering bug, just like her mom. Like, it's very hard for kids to imagination the things from top. All kids, they like draw the table like this, like mm-hmm. uh, front or side view. Yeah. But what she is thinking to draw from top is very imagination for her. Wow. Uh, I think it's very hard. I tell her, how do you know that? She tell me, I think you know, when I look from top, I, I see just like square or triangle. That is it. She is so smart. And Huda had something to say to all of us. And I, I will tell, thank you for American people to accept the refugee because that's a good things about uh, together. For Bill, it was the Guatemalan woman, and for Jason, it was Everest. The power of one person to change our heart or our mind or even the direction of our life, that's what I think makes us more human. My hope is that you'll leave your heart and mind open as we explore more refugee stories on the next seven episodes of In Their Own Voices. This program is made possible by the generous support of Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. Now please enjoy the musical stylings of Gazwan Abdullah as he plays us out with the rocky music he performed when he invited all of us into his home and shared his story. (laughs) 